Good morning. I too would like to welcome you here. We've got an excellent day to come to the house of the Lord, to worship together, and to join together in remembering Him and for a moment today study God's Word. Um, I've been doing studies in the Sermon on the Mount and about Jesus and how as He came and started His ministry, He began announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And there in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, He gives us a sermon or a set of teachings about what the kingdom looks like, about the people that make up the kingdom. As we continue that today, I hope that you'll be edified and uplifted in this as we're going to be talking about affections and anxieties. So in the first part, we'll do a quick review as we talk about who makes up the kingdom. It's those who live their life by a different set of values. They have their value structure around the kingdom and the Beatitudes. And they live this way and they obey God, not out of compulsion, but out of a desire to be like their Savior, Jesus Christ. And then as we get to chapter 6, we see that His disciples discipline themselves and they uh, take part of these Christian disciplines of giving, of praying, and of fasting so that these things happen for God's glory and not our own. And as we get to the last half of chapter 6, Jesus is going to look at our affections and our anxieties. And he asks us to consider what is important in your life. Where do I set my affections here on earth? If we spend our time putting importance on the things of this life, well, we may end up finding that our anxieties increase. And Jesus is going to show us a strong link between the things that we put our attention and our focus on and the things that we worry about. And so he's going to take a look at the stress and anxiety that we feel and see that that can really become a hindrance to the kingdom and a hindrance to our service. And so he's going to give us some tools for dealing with our stress and anxiety. As we back up and look at chapter 6, the first half that I studied last time, he talked about loving the praise of men. And he talked about the hypocrites, the actors who do the Christian disciplines to be seen of men. They do it for their own glory, living so that people can see me. And he tells them they have their reward, and it's not of their father, not of your father in heaven. It's an earthly reward. And so as we come to the second half of chapter 6, Jesus is going to show us that the citizens of the kingdom choose to put their trust in him and put their trust in God and not the material things around them. And here I think in chapter 6, he's addressing two of the greatest obstacles or hurdles to your service in the kingdom to my service in the kingdom, and also to the kingdom spreading and reaching other people. So we had the first, which is love for self and love for your own vainglory, and now he's shifting to the love of things, the love of money, if you will. And so possessions are the second danger to someone entering the kingdom. And Jesus is going to challenge us today with his teachings, and he's going to question where your allegiance lies. And so since like from the beginning of time, Jesus offers the cho- us the choice of who we're going to serve. If we're going to choose to trust in our riches or the things that we have in life, if we're going to trust in God and His care and provision. And so I'm splitting this into two parts where first we're going to talk about the riches. We're going to talk about the idolatry and covetousness that comes along with making the things of this life your master. And Jesus is going to challenge our affections, our attention, and our allegiance. And then in the second half, we're going to talk about the anxiety that that brings when we place our trust in the wrong things and don't place our trust in God. 
So we'll start by reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So in chapter 6, Jesus is talking about being worldly-minded. And often our greatest motivators are the, the fear or the, the fear of what other people think of me, as we talked about in the first half of chapter 6, or doing it for my glory. And the second is our money, our possessions, our worldly treasures. And I think these are often, or these are the biggest obstacles because it has us focus on ourselves, on what makes me happy, the things that I want. But the kingdom of heaven is not about the self, it's about service. Jesus taught us that it was about service to our fellow man. And so we have three little paragraphs here where Jesus hits it from three different angles to help us see it. It's all relatively the same thing, but he asks us to look at what our affections are, what your treasure is, where your attention is, what the things you look at, the things that have your attention and focus. And then he asked where our allegiance is. Where do, who do we serve? We can most easily identify these as possessions, and this is what Jesus focuses on in this section. But he's also getting at our hearts again. And he's calling us to evaluate where our heart is. And in truth, this can be any idol that we put above God. And it can be the covetousness that we feel from the possessions that, that we seek to acquire. And so the core issue is, where is your heart? Is it with the kingdom or with, is it with something else? And so we talked about obeying from the heart, practicing heart-based religion, and now we're called to elevate what our heart's desire is, to make it the kingdom of heaven. So the first part he talks about is our affections. What is your treasure? What are the things that you assign value to in life? What are the things that are important to you? We use the word treasure to refer to something that somebody has a lot of. You can say, well, he's got a treasure of trinkets. He's got a whole bunch of them. What are the things that you have an abundance of in your life? That's another way to think of it. It could be money. It could be cars. It could be the vacations that you take. It could even be something like baseball cards, believe it or not. That's actually still a thing. It could be your bank account. It could be your IRA, 401k, whatever you want to call it. Hunting trophies, your ambitions. Where are your treasures? Are they based here on earth? As I look at this section about your treasures and where your heart is, I'm reminded of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about all the things that he acquired. He set his heart to do all these different things, acquire servants, vineyards, uh, farms. He acquired all these different things, herds, musicians, and he even acquired wives. And this is what he says in verses 10 and 11. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my, my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor which I had toiled, and indeed it was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So Solomon 
throughout the book compares it to trying to grab smoke, trying to grab onto the wind. It can't be done. And smoke is beautiful. It has this uh, illusion about it, but it's gone in an instant. And so is the material possessions of this world. It quickly fades. None of these things satisfied him. And he continues in the book, and he says, if you increase your goods, well, so do the people that want to eat your goods, the people that want to consume those things. And he says, you can acquire whatever you want. You can amass a great wealth, but when you're gone, you don't take it with you. And the fact is, you don't hardly even get to choose who it really goes to. And they can squander it and get rid of your wealth in an instant. So what is it all for? You can give your heart to these things, but they don't give you anything back. They don't give you any meaning. And ultimately, they'll pull your heart away. As we see Solomon's outcome in 1 Kings 11, chapter 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father David. So what was Solomon's treasure? Ultimately, when it came down to it, women, wives and concubines, were what had his heart. That's what his treasure was. And he had a bunch of them, right? Something like 900. I mean, it's just absurd. This was where Solomon's heart was. And everything here on earth is subject to death and decay. And Jesus makes the point that rust is a, is a thing that destroys. Moths are a thing that destroy. And it's all a sign that time consumes it all. It's been a bad year for moths, hasn't it? We've basically seen them everywhere, and they can get into the tiniest of places. I literally saw one on the inside of a gas pump screen this week. I don't know how it got there, but they get in and they do their best to ruin our lives and destroy things. And if they happen to get into your closet, well, they can eat a hole in your shirt pretty quick. And that's pretty frustrating. But the message is that everything here on earth is heading towards death and decay. And Jesus calls us to turn our affections to the kingdom, where moth and rust does not destroy. We talk about 401ks or IRAs, retirement funds. And when people try to sell you on a retirement fund, they, they like make it a sure deal. And the funny thing is, when you invest, they have to tell you, we have no guarantee that your money's going to make anything. And the, the truth is, at the end of your work period, you could get to the day before you retire and the stock market crash and you lose it all. And Jesus is telling us to make deposits where it counts. If we're looking at the kingdom, it's the most sure deposit you can ever make. It's going to pay out 100%. It's going to pay out tenfold. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do. And the things here on this earth are really, for the most part, totally out of our control. It's totally subject to change. And so... In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure of heaven is more valuable than all your possessions here on earth. We see multiple examples of Christ making this analogy or actually telling people, go and sell what you have, come and follow me. Give away those things that that you have. And I think it begs the question, could you do it? Could I do it if I was called to, by Christ to sell everything I have, give it to the poor, and come and follow Him? 
He makes this comparison to this treasure that is greater than anything we could have here on earth, and we ought to treat it that way. You know, Jesus isn't teaching that poverty is the only means to inherit the kingdom, but he does have very strong language about our riches and our wealth. And he's calling us to seriously evaluate the value that we put on our stuff, the value that we put in our money and our worldly possessions. And if those things elevate themselves to above Christ, to above God, if we spend more of our time and effort on those things, well, it's a sign that we've made that an idol. The next thing Jesus talks about is, where is our attention? What are the things that we focus on? And so he makes this analogy about uh, your eye letting light into your body. The eye is the lamp of the body. And so what you put your focus on or what you give your attention will ultimately depend on what fills you inside. If I look at good things, if I uh, pay attention to the, the things of the kingdom, well, there'll be light inside of me. But if I focus on the darkness, well, I've got a great and terrible thing inside me. So he's essentially asking, where's your attention? What are the things you actually look at? And, you know, it's, we should take this literally. What do, I, what do I spend my time focusing on? I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, I finally started looking at new pickups. I had my first vehicle, got it when I was 15, had it for 13 years at the time. Just recently bought a new one, had it for 15 years, finally decided I could get a new vehicle. But as I started looking at pickups... I started seeing them all over the road. It was like the only vehicles I noticed. It was Chevrolet Silverados. They were all over the place. And all of a sudden, my attention and my focus was drawn to that. And I noticed it all the time. And so what, it, what grabs our attention? What grabs and catches our eye? I think we see several examples in the Scripture of, of where we focus our eyes and attention is where our desires will go. It will direct our desires. Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 28 has two different teachings about the greedy eye, which can lead to actually lead to poverty, and the generous eye, which sees somebody in need and helps them. Right away, I thought about the example of Eve and the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So Eve started really examining the tree of knowing good and evil. She started looking it over and she saw that these things looked good. The fruit on it looked nice. It looked good to eat. It was a beautiful tree to look on. And all of a sudden she had her focus on what was right in front of her and completely forgot about all the harm that it would bring her. I think we do the same. Satan comes along, he clouds our vision, and he draws our focus away from Christ and away from God, the things that are important. And he has us focus on our idols and our covetousness. And like a cat to a laser, we have things flash in front of us. It grabs our attention. The funny thing about the pickup that I wanted to buy is I didn't want a new pickup until I saw my brother got a new pickup. Had a little bit of covetousness set in. And a lot of times the the covetousness that we have is is just a, a driving factor of all this. And so where is your attention? You know, I can't help but think of my phone. I get a weekly screen time report. Maybe you do too. And sometimes it's embarrassing how much time I've spent literally looking at my phone. I've been caught by the algorithm. It's sunk me in deep a few times. And every app and website that you will visit on your phone or your computer is designed to keep you there longer, 
to keep your attention. And not all these things are necessarily evil. As I asked Avery about this and asked, what has your, a lot of your attention? We were driving down the road and behind us are sitting three boys. And so as a parent, especially of young children, it requires a lot of attention to raise your kids. It requires a lot of your focus and effort. But even something like your kids can turn into an idol, can turn into where we take them to all the sporting events. We make sure they're involved in every single activity, every camp. We prepare them for college. We prepare them for this life, but we fail to prepare them for life in the kingdom. And so even good things can end up turning out bad if we put the wrong focus on them. Same thing goes for our money. Our money can be a tool to help the kingdom, to help others, but it can also become our idol. Colossians 3, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He makes the equivalent here. Covetousness is idolatry. And maybe we don't put our mind and think about these things, but we all have things that direct our, our passions. And some of these things are, are easy to fall into when we, keep our, when we take our focus off of God. These things are ultimately a path to destruction. If you ask kids nowadays what they want to be when they grow up, you might get a lot of answers like pro athlete, singer, actor, somebody famous. But nowadays, the most popular thing that people want to be when they grow up is a YouTube influencer or an online influencer. And fame is another thing that never will satisfy. We see people's lives wrecked by fame. And as we look at social media, it's, it's not even a true picture of what, what life is really uh, about. Uh, here last week, I was listening to the song by the Gatlin brothers called All the Gold in California. It's a really beautiful song. But he, he's got a great line in the second verse. He says, living in the spotlight can kill a man outright. It'll destroy you. And ultimately, fame doesn't promise you anything either. It actually promises you a lot of stress. And then he says, everything that glitters is not gold. The flashy things that come before us, it really holds no value. It's fool's gold. There's nothing to it. And so Jesus calls us to turn our eyes to the light. Instead of focusing on myself, to focus on the kingdom and focus on what I can do for others. And so as we see here about the desires that we might have to do for evil, Jesus doesn't want to kill our desires, but He wants to channel them in the right direction. As we think about meekness from the Beatitudes, that's bringing your desires and the, and the potential that you have, bringing it under control so that it can be directed for the Master's use not for our own. In Psalm 119, verses 36 and 37, it says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Keep my eyes from looking at worthless things. Let's keep our attention in the right place. Let's keep our focus on the kingdom. Let's make Jesus our master and give Him our allegiance. Not to our covetousness, not to the vain things, the flashy things that come before us, but put our trust and allegiance in Him. And so finally, Jesus questions, what, where's your allegiance? Who are you going to serve? He talks about 
A servant cannot serve two different masters. He's employed by one. He can't be employed by both. He's going to respect one and only one. And so he says, you've got the choice. You can serve God or mammon. Mammon was this word to represent material wealth, to represent gain and money, but it gives a a personification, a figure, if you will. And that can be our master. And as we think about wealth and, and possessions, it's, it can be a difficult balance at times because we need to work so that we can provide for ourselves, get the things that we need. We've got groceries to buy. We've got clothing to buy. And all these things are necessary for our lives, but we can quickly, quickly turn those things around to where they become our idol, where we place more trust in the corruptible things in life. And so, one of the many warnings against riches, is, or we have the warnings against riches because of the tendency to believe that I've made it on my own. I've done this all by myself instead of putting my reliance and trust in God. In Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, we get this story. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yield plentifully. So this rich man has so much, he doesn't know what to do with it. He says, well, I'm going to tear down my barns and build greater. And he says this, So you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose, th- whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this man made his possessions his master. He put his trust in the things that he gained. Growing up on a farm, my parents uh, could relate to this. You'd have one year where you get all the timely rains, you make an excellent crop and think, man, we are set for a while. Two years later, you have the worst drought that you've ever seen in farming and you barely make it. And so this man here was putting his trust. He said, I got plenty set up for a long time. Take your ease. Be merry. Not realizing that it could be gone in a second and not realizing that his life could be gone at any second. And so he made these things his master. He made these things his trust. Remember what Jesus said about the hypocrites? He said, they have their reward. Same thing if you search after riches, if you make those your master, you can get that reward. It's it's fairly likely you'll get the things that you're looking for, but that's all you're going to get. There's no eternal reward to that. There's no reward of your Father in heaven. This man got his reward, but it cost him his soul. And so who is your master? What do you serve? What do you put your time and effort into? Think today, as we, we think about who we serve, about where our loyalties lie, we see a lot of reliance and and loyalties to yourself, to myself. And the self is maybe one of the worst masters because we're constantly impressed by the shiny things that pass by. We've got the emotions that, uh, and the, the desires that push us in every which direction. We drag ourselves around pursuing this or that. We pursue gain. We pursue fame. We operate off of impulse. As I think about Western society, one of the great things it's done is protected individuals, raise the individuals so that every person gets a fair shot. 
But I think we've taken it a bit too far and where the individual has now become more important than the group. And we see that played out today in society and many of the things surrounding the culture wars are because of service of self. The things that I want to do, the things that make me feel good or my truth. And they elevate and worship themselves instead of worshiping what is right and what is true. Instead of giving their attention to God. And I think this is the source of the the pride movement, if you will, the transgender movement that we're seeing right now. It's all about what makes me happy. It's about how I define my words. You can't define them for me. And I think this is why we have such terrible mental health in our society. We're totally focused on self. It's whatever you want to do. It's your right to do this, your right to do that. You can do what you want to. We've talked about it a little bit, but social media gives us this skewed perspective of reality. People only put the best things of their life on social media. And it's leading to addiction and it's leading to depression. We're seeing the highest rates of depression amongst teens right now. And we're seeing a society that is uh, very mentally sick. And it's because we're placing our attention and our focus in the wrong place as a society. We no longer hold to core values. The individual reigns supreme. And so here's Jesus' next point. When we put our affections, our attention, and our allegiance on things of this world or on ourselves, we're going to be plagued by anxiety. It's going to cause worry in our lives. And it's because all these things are temporary. All of them are corruptible. And so in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is life... Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, if you put your trust in the right place, if you direct your attention, your your focus, your ambitions, you you focus those things on the kingdom, you don't have any reason to to worry. God's going to take care of you. So as we shift to the second part of this, I've got to ask the question, what causes you to worry? What keeps you up at night? What things stress you out? As Jesus is preaching here to these people, there are people in the crowd that probably had concerns about where their next meal would be coming from. There were people that were much worse off. And I'm fairly certain that none of us have that issue here today. None of us have the issue of knowing if we're going to have clothes to wear. But we each have anxieties and worries that can actually grip us and it can paralyze us. If we look at the definition of worry, there's an alternate definition that talks about an animal chewing on a bone, like a dog worrying a bone. Pretty interesting definition, but it makes a lot of sense. If worry grabs a hold of us, it gnaws at us, it eats at us, it, it makes us raw to the core. And it can cause us to lose sleep, it can cause us to stop eating, it can cause us to stop moving forward. I feel pretty fortunate in that I've not struggled with a lot of worry and the kind that keeps me from sleeping or eating, but I can relate to the fact that when I get worried about something, I tend to just shut down and I kind of pretend it doesn't exist. And that's just as dangerous because it keeps us from moving forward. It keeps us from moving in the right direction. And so Jesus gives us some things to help us deal with our worry. He's already shown us where we should put our affections, our attention, and our allegiance But he doesn't stop there. 
he gives us a few more things as we continue on. He says, Look at the birds of the air, for neither they, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So as we look at the rest of chapter 6, the first thing that Jesus points out that will help us with our anxieties and our worries is, number one, God cares for you. It's a tremendous comfort in knowing that the creator of the universe personally knows what you're going through, personally knows the number of hairs on your head, and knows exactly what you need. Before we even ask, God knows it. In the same way that God cares for nature, He cares for you. And so we have the example of the birds and the grass. We see an abundance of birds all around us all the time. God cares for them. And they don't gather things into barns. They don't store up for the future. They're just concerned about making it for today. And of course, they build nests and they do things that they need to do to survive, but they're relying on God. They're doing what they were created to do. As we look at the, the grass of the fields, it just sits there and patiently waits for rain. We've been waiting for rain for a while now, and man, we've, we've gotten a lot. And, and it's amazing how all of a sudden it greens up and things start growing. And the plants of the field don't even require any work. They do what God has made them to do. He takes care of them. And how much more will He take care of us? And Jesus here isn't teaching that nothing bad is going to happen to you. In fact, it may be that your fears become realized, even some of your worst fears, and they come true. But we are offered the comfort in that God has all these things under His control. And for those who trust in Him, they truly have nothing to fear because God has promised all things work to good, work out for good for those who love Him. In Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 and 2, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I've often read verse 1 and stopped right there. But if you look at what's going on around this person, it's pretty frightening. He says, Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Calamity is just breaking loose. And despite whatever happens to the earth, I'm going to put my trust in God because He's our refuge and He's our strength. As I think about Peter and when he walked on the water towards Jesus, he was in a similar situation. There's chaos all around him in the storm. But as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able to walk on the water and walk toward Jesus. But as soon as he gave his fears and respect to the waves and started looking around and started worrying and fearing about that, well, that's the moment that he sank. And if we give uh, attention to our fears and our worries, we too can sink. 
If we look at the rest, uh, continuing through verse, verse 5 in Psalm 46, it says, Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. I couldn't help but find this interesting because as we look at the city, we see that in God's holy city, He is there. He is in His holy city and He is in the tabernacle and we have the river of life flowing out of that city. And if you remember to our study in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, we see the holy city represented as the church. And so as we think about the church, the holy city of God, it's a place where we can find refuge, where we can find strength, where our worries can be quelled. And I think we ought to take that attitude as we come together. As we are a group and a family that have come together in the name of Christ, we have an excellent place to bring our cares where other people can help us. We talked about individualism earlier, and that cannot be the attitude when it comes to the church. We are not a group of individuals, but we have come together for the greater good. We've come together to help one another. Jesus has invited us into a relationship with Him and a relationship with His church, and that requires that we shift our focus to helping others, shift our focus to the kingdom. And that means that we help one another and bear one another's burdens. As we look at the church in Acts, in the first part of Acts, we see that they were taking the Matthew chapter 6 teaching very radical and that they were selling the things that they had so that nobody had any need. They had all things in common. And I think the danger is that we may think that we're alone in some of these things, that it's all on us, that it's all on us to provide for ourselves. And we often forget that we have this amazing support family around us. And so Jesus criticizes our faith for thinking that way, even if we think that way about the necessities, if we're worrying about the real necessities of life, he's criticizing our thinking in that. And so the second thing he tells us to do is have faith and trust in him. He says, oh, you of little faith, you've got so little faith that you can't rely on God to take care of these things. And when we give our worry to the things of this life, it's a symptom that we have a lack of faith in God and a lack of trust in God. As we think to the model prayer, Jesus mentions, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, take care of us for today. Help us get the things that we need for today. And so there's a daily aspect to this. It's a, it's a daily thing that we're called in to daily trust for God's care and provision, just as the children of Israel in the wilderness relied on the manna. And he says this at the end, don't worry about the things of tomorrow. There's plenty of things that it'll have to worry about for itself. There's plenty of troubles to worry about tomorrow. Let's focus on today. Take care of the things today. And that doesn't mean that we don't, that we don't plan ahead, that we don't provide for our future, but we have trust in God because we know that He is the one constant. All the plans that we have for the future, they can change tomorrow. They could change in the next hour. And so we can make our plans, but understand when they change, we're going to rely on God. We're going to focus on the things we can do today. Same thing tomorrow. Same thing the next day. There's a daily reminder to it. We see that Jesus also faced worry and anxiety. And as we look at him in the garden, 
we ought to notice his response. Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 and 39. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the first thing we see is that Jesus took his concerns to God in prayer. He had an immense weight bearing down on him. And he took those things and he turned them over to God. And he said, Lord, if there is any other way that we can do this, let's, let's do it a different way. He begged and pleaded for that. But what did he say at the end? Not as I will, but as you will. He chose to submit and to trust. He chose to trust in God and trust in his plan. And he calls us to do the same as a part of his kingdom. To turn the things that we have no control over, turn those things over to God. And so where do you put your trust today? Is it the things of this world? What are the things that cause you worry? I think if we do an analysis, we'll find the things that cause us to worry are often the things that are outside of our control. Whatever stress we feel, we need to bring that to God. and We need to bring that to Him in prayer. And you can say, Father, I don't know what the outcome of this thing is that I'm worried about. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that you make all things work together for good. And whatever happens, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to submit to your will. Whatever your will is, let that be done. And suddenly, as we begin to take on this mindset, we can let that worry go because I've taken the focus off of me and I've given those things over to God. I take it all off of me and I can lay it on Him. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. As we take on this, this perspective and this attitude, God promises us peace. And a peace that doesn't make sense. A peace that passes our understanding but we've got to have faith and we've got to trust in Him. Jesus makes the point of we can't change the trivial things in this life by worrying. There are some things that are simply out of our control. We can't worry ourselves into living longer or growing taller. And so God has given you the things for today. Let us be faithful with those things. Because I think about Hebrews chapter 11 and think about the heroes of faith. They all looked to the promise that was set before them, the promise that God had. And we have Jesus Christ set before us. And we're called to look to Him, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so He's shifting our affections, our attention, and our allegiance to the kingdom. And that's the final point as we look at this to deal with our worry. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We've got to put first, uh, first things first. We've got to get our priorities straight. And Jesus assures us that when we, when we do that, that the rest of it's going to all work out. But we're going to have the things that we need, that we truly need. And as we think about putting first things first, it's easy to put the kingdom on the back burner. It's easy to get distracted by the cares of this life, the things that we have to do, the things that we want to do. And so it requires a conscious effort to make the kingdom our treasure, to make it our pearl of great price, to make our value structure that of the kingdom, to allow Jesus to change us daily. And when we do that, we can 
spread the borders of the kingdom. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. The kingdom here on earth has some promises that come with it. We have this amazing group here in this room. We've got this amazing church family, and it's one of the great promises of the kingdom that is now, the life that we have for us now, the blessings that are in store for us if we submit to the kingdom. But as we exercise ourselves toward godliness and towards the kingdom, we've got a much greater promise of the life that is to come. And if we find ourselves focusing on the kingdom, busy with the work of the kingdom, suddenly we don't have time to worry. Suddenly we don't have time to worry about our glory or our possessions. But we have taken on the mind of Christ and aligned ourselves with the Father. And so as we close this morning, I want to ask again, what causes you to worry? What causes you to get stressed out? Where do you see that your affections are today? We need to do a... Uh, deep dive, evaluate our hearts, and we may find that there are some hidden treasures in our heart. Not the good kind, the kind that takes our focus off the treasure that is in heaven. You may find that you've put something ahead of Christ and you've made that your idol. And so if you have a real struggle this morning, something that has burdened you, that's given you worry and anxiety, we want to be able to help you with that. Like I said, that's part of what we're here for as the church, is to help one another, to bear one another's burdens. We have a great opportunity where we can come together as, the, as a church family and bring those things before the Father and ask for His care and provision and know that all things are going to work out for good if we trust and we submit to Him. And as we talked about making sure deposits, you can make the most sure bet of your life, the most sure deposit, and it's not even a bet, it's a guarantee if you choose to join the kingdom this morning through baptism. And so you can leave behind the worries of this life, the worries that will drag you down, and you can submit yourself to Jesus and the kingdom. If there's one of either, we'll ask that you come as we stand and sing.